0: Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. Approximately six weeks ago, I mentioned that I started a discipleship class in January of 2022. I took some men through eight months of discipleship and it was a tremendous blessing for them and for me. I originally started this discipleship to raise up some preachers and teachers, but found that others wanted to be discipled who didn't feel called to the pulpit ministry. This was a wonderful time for these men to mature in their relationship with Christ and be prepared to serve their church, pastor, and community in a greater way. This was a powerful, life-changing time for them. I've decided to start another class this January, and this time it's open for men and women, Who want to go deeper in their faith one reason i started this class was to fill the void that bible schools and universities didn't fill and i don't see this changing in the near future bible schools give information but they don't effectively develop the character of the students jesus is our perfect example though he imparted to the disciples a tremendous amount of truth he was also laboring to develop their character The quality of our character is more important than having a degree in higher education now i don't want to diminish the value of a good biblical education but godly character is absolutely necessary for anyone who wants to be a follower of jesus especially somebody who wants to be a preacher the sermon comes out of the man therefore the quality of the person's character is of the utmost importance and this is the focus of this discipleship training Even though I kept the structure of this discipleship for preachers and teachers, I found it was excellent for those who just wanted to be more grounded in their faith and useful to build Christ's kingdom. Some of the subjects we will dig in is our pursuit of God, the place and power of prayer, and the attributes of God. If we are to be good ambassadors of Christ, then we must be in deep abiding fellowship with Him. There's one class a week and homework that will take some time to work through. This is far more than a weekly Bible study, but an investment in your spiritual life. Those who live near Dry Ridge, Kentucky will be required to attend the weekly class in person, while those who live at a distance will meet at the same time via Microsoft Teams. I don't charge anything to be part of this discipleship. The only expense is the cost of the books, which is minimal. However, I do require that students are fully invested into the discipleship by being at every class and turning in their homework on time and completely finished. During this time, I make myself available on a personal basis to help each student through this discipleship. For those who feel called to preach and teach, I will try to find opportunity for you to minister during the discipleship and at your home church if your pastor is open to it. If you are interested in being a part of this discipleship class, then please send me an email and I will send you a simple application along with a syllabus. Then I will set up a time for us to talk, to answer your questions and see if this discipleship is right for you. You can find my contact information on my website, which is www.ihpministry.com. My email address is glenn at ihpministry.com and this is g-l-e-n-n at i-h-p-m-i-n-i-s-t-r-y dot And my cell phone number is 209-678-5808. I will mention this class a couple more times in the podcast before we begin in mid-January. This date is fast approaching, so don't delay if you're interested. Now let's get into the lesson. To this point in Acts chapter 6, we have studied the account of the first deacons, which led into the life of Stephen, who was the church's first martyr. Stephen's character is described as, as being a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of wisdom, full of grace, and full of power. What an awesome testimony that was given by God himself because the hordes of hell are always angry over God's work of grace that makes men like Stephen. We are told that opposition arose against him. Stephen was being used by the Holy Spirit to perform signs and wonders and to preach the word of God. Many people were coming to salvation as a result. The opposition came through a Greek speaking synagogue for the Jews that weren't born in Israel, but within the Roman empire. This synagogue catered to Jews who were once slaves, but had somehow purchased their freedom or were the descendants of those who were once slaves. Why these Jews from this synagogue became the catalyst to have Stephen martyred, we don't know. It may have been that the members of the Sanhedrin used them to persecute the church, and they were merely puppets being manipulated by the Sanhedrin. They were surely men that were being manipulated by devils at the very least these ungodly religious men couldn't stand against Stephen because he was full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. When their arguments from the Word of God broke down, they turned to personal attacks, and as we will soon see, they became liars by bringing false witnesses against Stephen, which is thoroughly condemned by God and His Word. Verse 11 reveals the wicked character of these religious men, stating, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. As I have touched on before in this series, there is great power in having multiple witnesses, whether in relation to civil or religious laws. The Jews of the Freeman synagogue outright lied about what Stephen said, but many people believe the lie that the ends justify the means. Though they knew that they were fabricating lies about Stephen, they justified their actions by claiming that this man was detrimental to society and the Jewish nation. Their thought was similar to what Caiaphas, the wicked high priest, prophesied in John chapter 11, verse 50, that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. The Lord spoke through the high priest not because he was a man of God, because he wasn't, but because of the office he held as the head of the temple and priesthood. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. The Jews from the Freeman synagogue began to secretly maliciously persuade some men to lie, saying, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. There was absolutely no substance to their claim. The truth didn't matter to them. They just wanted to silence Stephen's voice because it brought the conviction of the Holy Spirit that worked through him. They wanted to bring the severest charge possible against Stephen, which was blasphemy against Moses or God. This is the sin of speaking impiously of God's nature, attributes, words, or works, or speaking against Moses himself. They did this by perverting what Stephen preached, that salvation comes through Christ alone. After securing some false witnesses, we are told in verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. This verse gives the feel that there were other forces manipulating the actions of these men, which may have been the Sanhedrin council or some of the elders and teachers of the Mosaic law. This also reveals the devilish power of malicious gossip that when spoken into the ears of evil people can move them to advance the agendas of hell. Some people are easy to arouse to anger as if they were looking for someone to get angry at or a reason to raise a ruckus. This is what happened in this case. And this is still true today, as we see with the anti-Semitism that's exploding around the world. And this too is inspired by hell. As with the account of Stephen, the wicked never win over the righteous, and Stephen is absolutely victorious over those who hated him and attacked him. Once again, we see the Sanhedrin council right smack dab in the middle of attacking Jesus and his disciples. These religious Jews were thoroughly deceived and were the impetus for bringing judgment on the nation in 70 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans. Dead religion is always hostile to God and contrary to authentic faith in Christ. The ugly nature of these demon-inspired men is seen in verses 13 and 14. They produce false witnesses who testify, "This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us." These accusations are similar like those who spoke against Jesus. In both cases, they couldn't murder Jesus or Stephen without having to develop a web of lies and deception. That people who do such things is evidence of how deceived they are. They think that lies and deception are good so long as they accomplish their evil designs. When people begin to believe lies, those lies breed more lies. And as people give over to lies, they begin to think that their lies are truth and that what they are doing is right. When it comes to religion, To believe lies to advance a religious agenda are some of the most insidious deceptions on the planet. Half-truths are lies that are thoroughly evil. The strength of lies and deception is that there's woven within them some aspect of truth, and this is what sucks people into the lies. If these religious men spoke the truth, they would exonerate Stephen, but that wasn't their agenda. They were out for blood, and they wouldn't stop until the blood of Stephen was spilled on the ground. The holy place they were talking about is the temple, which was eventually destroyed exactly like Jesus prophesied. The law is a reference to the Mosaic law that cannot give life because it doesn't have the ability to save from death. The law is true and righteous, but it condemns sinners and offers no hope for the willful sinner. The law was only fulfilled in Jesus, and this is probably what they heard Stephen talking about, but perverted his teaching to advance their own selfish agenda. None of the sacrifices could save people. This power and right only belongs to Messiah, who offered himself as the Lamb of God to take upon himself the sins of the world. The gospel is a message of hope, forgiveness, and transformation, while the law is one that offers no hope for rebellious sinners. The law commands us to be perfect, but doesn't offer us the grace to live it out like the gospel does. Stephen didn't blaspheme God or speak against the law or Moses. He had effectively proven through his preaching, as we will see in his sermon in chapter 7, that the religious elite haven't obeyed the Mosaic law that was given to them through angels. This truth infuriated those who heard Stephen preach. God was going to defend Stephen before these deceived and wicked men, but not in the way we would normally think. God's defense of Stephen is eternal because he is with the Savior right now while his accusers are forever separated from the Lord. In verse 15, we are told that all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen's antagonists saw the glory of God resting upon him, yet they were unmoved by what they saw and continued to attack him. It's interesting that the very moment these wicked men brought their heinous charges against Stephen, his face glowed with the glory of heaven. We don't know what it means that Stephen's face glowed like that of an angel. But we can safely say that his face was otherworldly. It was different than all the faces of his persecutors. This was clearly supernatural and not merely the sun shining on his face. It was obvious because everyone in the place saw it. Those who just spewed out their venomous lies saw Stephen's face glow with the glory of God, and every member of the Sanhedrin saw it as well, including the high priest. Yet what they saw didn't stop them from committing a dreadful crime. This happened to Jesus as well. When the Lord finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he walked up to those who came to arrest him. When Jesus asked whom they were seeking, they responded that they came for Jesus of Nazareth. We are told in John chapter 18, verse 6, that when Jesus said, I am he, they were knocked backward to the ground by the divine power Jesus possesses as God. Yet they still illegally arrested him. When people are deceived, then even miracles will be misunderstood or ignored altogether. It was obvious that God was with Stephen and that he was operating through divine power yet they continued in their despicable ways, willfully blind to the truth that was right before their eyes. The end of chapter 6 clearly continues in the chapter 7, for this is one account about Stephen and his martyrdom. We will hear this great man's response to the accusations that were brought against him and the spirit-inspired fiery message that he preached. We see in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? The high priest wasn't asking this question with an honest, open heart. The new faith was rapidly spreading, and the Sanhedrin was looking for a way to stop it. But to this point, they didn't see a way out of their predicament. The Sanhedrin was trying to trip up Stephen, just like they tried with Jesus and the apostles. They were hoping that he would incriminate himself so that they could silence this spirit-filled man once and for all. Yet they absolutely failed to silence his voice. The reality is that Stephen wasn't on trial, though that's what it appeared to be to the natural lie. Those who accused Jesus and Stephen were the ones on trial. They were incriminating themselves before God Almighty and before the people of Israel. Their guilt would rest upon their own heads for all of eternity, and the judgment they decreed for Stephen came upon themselves when they died and went to hell. The high priest asked, are these charges true? And in the following verses, Stephen gives his defense. Yet Stephen isn't defending himself, but Jesus. He is proclaiming who Messiah is and was exposing the guilt of the religious elite, neither of which made them happy. They were expecting to have Stephen cowering before them, begging for his life. Instead, they faced a man of God whose face was shining like that of an angel, whose prophetic sermon made their guilt rise up in all of its horror. The opportunity of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus was being offered to them, but most, if not all of them, rejected this offer of love. Verse 2 begins Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Stephen began his defense by showing that they were all descendants of the patriarchs, and he respectfully honors those who were the elders of Israel. Though many people don't understand this, the patriarch of the children of Israel was a Gentile. Prior to Abraham, the Jews as a people group didn't exist. There was no Jewish religion, and there wasn't the nation of Israel. This isn't strange because every people, group, nation, and religion had a beginning. Abraham, as a Chaldean, grew up worshiping all the false gods his father worshiped. For that's how it worked back then. The father was the head of the family clan who determined their religion. How Abraham came to worship the one true God, we aren't told. But the Lord revealed himself to a man who wanted to know the truth. And when this happened, Abraham forsook the gods of his father. Abraham would have been considered at this point an atheist because the God he served didn't have a name, image, or locality. This is far more radical than we might commonly think. In verses three and four, we are told that the Lord spoke to him saying, leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran after the death of his father. God sent him to this land where you are now living. It's not just that Abraham forsook the gods of his father to follow a god with no name, image or territory as the pagan gods have. He also told his father that he must leave Chaldea, the land of their birth. This is radical. Abraham's father followed his son, and the clan settled in Haran. The god with no name, image, or territory told Abraham to leave his homeland to go to a land that he didn't tell him where it was. Abraham was a man of great faith, for it took great faith to do what he did. It was only after the death of his father that Abraham left for the promised land. In verse 5, Stephen went on to say he gave Abraham no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. Here we get a glimpse of Abraham's great faith. He believed the promises of God about him becoming a great nation who would possess the land that he saw, but he wasn't allowed to inherit the land at that time. Stephen is laying out in simple terms the history of Israel. He was doing this to prove to the religious elite that Jesus is their promised Messiah, whom they crucified, but was raised from the dead, which gives proof of his divinity and that he is the Messiah. In verses 6 and 7, Stephen quoted the Torah where the Lord told Abraham, God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards will come out of that country and worship me in this place. These are some really challenging promises for Abraham to process before he even had a child. The Lord told him that his descendants would be slaves and mistreated for four hundred years. That's not a fun idea. There's debate over the length of time. Stephen states that Israel was in slavery. But I'm not going to get into that since it would only distract from seeing the big picture that Stephen was painting. One major reason why Israel was enslaved was to protect an obscure clan from annihilation so that they could grow up into a nation. It was a hard place to be in. But outside of that setting, the people may have been destroyed or never grown into a people group that could become a nation. In verse 8, the Lord gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. The clan was growing. The promises given to Abraham were slowly unfolding. The Lord was raising up people that were to be unique among mankind, and circumcision was a mark upon their bodies as an outward sign that they were in covenant with God. Yet they didn't live like the people of God, as we see in verses 9 and 10. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. It's astounding how God can take the evil acts of people and use them for the good of others. But this is exactly what the Lord did. Everyone in the family tribe suffered for the sins of the brothers, not just Joseph. What came out of this painful ordeal was the survival of a family that eventually became a nation through whom Messiah came. Stephen then made several points through verses 11 through 16. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Cana, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and his fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. This was an overview of how the Israelites came to live in Egypt, where they grew into a great nation. Stephen went on to declare in verses 17 through 19, As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. This is how the Israelites were enslaved by Egypt. It's interesting that the promise of Abraham was being fulfilled. In verses 20 through 22, we are told, At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Stephen jumps ahead in time and summarizes the birth of Moses and how he became a prince of Egypt. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After Moses committed murder, he fled from Egypt to Midian, where he came to know God through this wilderness experience. Moses knew he was to deliver Israel from her slavery, but his self-effort produced only death. He first had to become a man of God before he was usable by God. Now, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. For 40 years, Moses was in the making of a worldly man as a prince of Egypt. Forty years, he was in the wilderness being delivered from Egypt so that he could become a man of God. Then the Lord revealed himself to Moses in a startling way through a burning bush. The man had been prepared. Now it was time for Moses to fulfill his call. At this point, Stephen brings Jesus into the story. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living words to pass on to us. At first, the Israelites rejected Moses and in like manner, the people of Israel were rejecting their Messiah. Messiah is infinitely greater than Moses, though most of the people of Stephen's day didn't understand this fact. Verses 39 through 41 exposes the heart of the people, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifice to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. The people of Israel consistently refused to obey God, and they chose instead to practice their rebellion, which only brought them pain and suffering and death. The moment we refuse to love and worship God, we have erected in His place some kind of worthless idol. We were created by God to be worshipers of God and God alone. Either we worship the Lord or we will worship something our hands or minds have made. Then we read God's response to the people in verses 42 through 43. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Rathan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. We see here one of the greatest judgments that God gave them over to their evil. Their persistent rebellion eventually brought about the destruction of their nation, Jerusalem, and the temple. Many were taken as slaves to Babylon until their 70-year captivity came to an end. Stephen then mentions the tabernacle in verses 44 through 46. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. The tabernacle was a portable church that survived until it was superseded by Solomon's temple. The tabernacle and sacrificial system was divined by God to point to Messiah and what he would accomplish. In them were types and shadows of better things that come through Christ alone. Then Stephen mentioned the temple in verses 47 through 50. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? King Solomon built the temple his father David longed to build. Though Solomon built it, the temple would never be able to contain the uncontainable God. Rather than understanding that the temple and sacrificial system was pointing to something greater, which is Messiah, Israel had come to idolize the temple. Stephen brought application to this overview of the life of Israel in verses 51-53. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen proved that the sins Israel practiced in the past were still defining them in the present. Their dead religion was just as idolatrous as when Israel worshiped the pagan gods from the nations they conquered. But Israel was in the days of Jesus in the early church, so mankind is to this very day. We are no different, and that's why we need the spiritual revolution that comes through repentance and the true salvation that only Jesus can give. Stephen gave an overview of Israel's history to help the Sanhedrin see they were sinners in need of a savior. Their actions, which we will get into in our next lesson, reveals that a hard, unrepentant heart can commit greater evils than they ever thought possible. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at in His Presence Ministries, pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihp. M-I-N-I-S-T-R-Y dot See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Under the water, And the thirst no more so come wash in the river Come drink your fill Let healing waters A better way again.